Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, April 4th, 2018. We are going back in time to listen to a good Easter sermon from years past. (laughs) Details in a minute. tuning in you're listening to fighting for the faith my name is chris rosebro i am your servant in jesus christ and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment the goal of which help you to think biblically help you to think critically and help you to slow down stop open up your bible and compare compare what people are saying in the name of god to the word of god sadly There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast with the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles, and apostolates, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that's teaching that is put forward for consumption by Christians, far from biblical, not even close to what God's Word said. There's a lot of twisting of God's Word, making God's Word void, teaching for shameful gain, things that ought not to be taught, as well as a lot of ear-scratching and ear-tickling going on. This is not what Christ's pastors are called to do. Instead, we as Christians, and pastors in particular, are called to preach the Word, to rightly handle, rightly divide the Word of truth, and to teach the trustworthy Word as taught, not add our own spin to it, or teach things that no Christian has believed, taught, or confessed since the beginning of the church. Yeah, that's not how that works. So part of the way we do this, then, is by availing ourselves of good sermons, and this is part of what we do here at Fighting for the Faith. It's the comparing and contrasting, the the bad with the good that go together. So you can sit there and go, man, I can see the difference now. You may not be able to if you've only begun listening to Fighting for the Faith, but keep listening to the program. Over a period of time, over a period of weeks, you'll begin to say, oh, I get it. And uh, what's the term they use nowadays? Woke? Yeah, I don't know what that exactly applies, but the idea is this. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. And once you see it, you're going to realize, oh, this isn't bringing me into bondage. This is setting me free from those who are manipulating me, taking advantage of me. And rather than comforting me, they are continuing to leave me in a state of doubt and uncertainty and things like that. Yeah, false doctrine always will do that to you. 
So uh, today, we'll, we'll, I'll quickly talk about what we're going to do today. But uh, before we get to that, I wanted to say that uh, we have opened up the registration for this year's 2018 Pirate Christian Radio Conference. And uh, all of the details are over at fightingforthefaith.com. When you go to fightingforthefaith.com, look at the top navigation bar next to our Cairo flag, and uh, it says 2018 PCR Conference. And i I got to say this. This is the time to register because seats are limited. Let me explain who will be there. At this year's conference, the Fight the Good Fight of Faith Conference, it's August 10th and 11th at in Oslo, Minnesota, at the church uh, where I serve at, Kongsvinger Lutheran Church, Oslo, Minnesota. This, the speakers are myself, the Reverend Dr. Matthew Richard, who is the author of Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up, Sandra Ostapowich, who is uh, the uh, the executive, a uh, conference executive for Higher Things, and I, I've worked with uh, Sandra for years, and I'm really excited for her lectures that she'll be presenting there. But uh, we also have invited Phil Johnson. That's right, the right hand man of of uh, uh, Dr. John MacArthur. He's the executive director of Grace to You. He's regularly featured here at Fighting for the Faith, and he has graciously uh, agreed to uh, to speak at our conference this year. So the best thing I can tell you is you want to register early. And uh, we do have child care available for, um, for children 5 to 12. Yeah, and so... Uh, all of the pricing information is there. By the way, we do have a special rate with the Fairfield Inn and Suites in uh, in East Grand Forks. The information is there. Make sure that when you call and make the reservation that you say you're part of the Pirate Christian Radio Conference. They have given us a discounted rate because uh, we've done business with them in the past. All of the information is there for you to register. And so you know, space is limited to... 150 adults. <laughs> that's our cutoff. Yeah, that's right. Only 150. And uh, one of the things that I have made a point of doing over the years, I like my conferences to be intimate. The idea is this, is that when you attend a large conference, yeah, you're with a whole lot of people, but the, the ability for you to speak with and interact with the speakers and with each other is uh, greatly diminished based upon large audiences. So over the years, uh, we've made a point of keeping the Pirate Christian Radio conferences small. But because of that fact you are going to want to register sooner rather than later because uh, (laughs) good things do not come to them who wait. (laughs) Once we've maxed out, we are shutting down the registration and you will not be able to register. So I want to let you know that. Again, all of the information, fightingforthefaith.com, at the top part of the navigation, 2018 PCR conference, and uh, and you'll be able to uh, register there. And uh, we'll talk later in the year about our, our ongoing conference uh, schema, if you would. We're going to change things up starting next year, how we're going to be doing our conferences. And uh, But this year, Fight the Good Fight of Faith. In Oslo, Minnesota, again, myself, uh, the Reverend Dr. Matt Richard, Sandra Asapowich, and Phil Johnson. It, I guarantee, will be a great 
time. And I hope you are brushing up on your sea shanties. That's all I'm saying. I just leave it at that. But uh, anyway, so let's now talk about what we're going to be doing on today's installment of Fighting for the Faith Light episode today. And so what I've decided we're going to do, we're going to go back in time. We're going to listen to an Easter sermon delivered by Martin Lloyd-Jones back in the day on 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. And the name of the sermon is A Complete Redemption. We're going to take a break then, and we're going to listen to the sermon he preached the following week, the following week after Easter, and the name of it is If Christ Be Not Risen, same verse, and both of these, the best way I can put it is they are gold. (laughs) It's just, I mean, and one of the wonderful things here is that Martin Lloyd-Jones is safe in his grave. And with all of the saints in glory in the very presence of Christ himself. And so there's no way that he's going to be swayed by any of the current bizarre teachings that are out there regarding the resurrection and what it means. And he does a fine exegetical work of fleshing out the importance of rightly understanding Christ's death and resurrection for us, talking about redemption and also talking about the fact that Jesus rose bodily from the grave. And as we listen to the first sermon, you're going to note, I mean, he is not pulling any punches. He's coming straight out and literally making it clear. There are people who are sentimentalizing the resurrection, who are spiritualizing the resurrection, and he's having none of it. He's going right for the throat, talking about the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And uh, we need more men who have this type of boldness and directness when it comes to proclaiming our risen Savior. So without any further ado, here's sermon number one, preached on an Easter Sunday back in the day, a complete redemption. Here's Martin Lloyd-Jones. The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in that portion of Scripture we read at the beginning, the first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 15, And reading in particular, again, verse 12. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But obviously, one cannot confine oneself to any one verse in this great statement. You noticed at the beginning we read some 28 verses, and they're all intimately related The apostle is developing a great and a mighty and a most moving argument. And what I am anxious to do this morning is to hold something of that argument before you. Now, those who meet here regularly will know that for many Sunday mornings we've been looking together at a passage of scripture which is found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 6, verses 10 to 13. And we've been examining in particular a phrase there, the wiles of the devil. The apostle says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Take unto you the whole armor of God, that he may be able to withstand the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that he may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all things, 
to stand. We've been examining the wiles of the devil. And we'd reached a point at which we were considering the wiles of the devil as they appear in the form of heresies. Heresies troubling the church. The devil is very anxious to destroy God's work. He is a hater of God. His original rebellion was prompted by his jealousy of God and his desire to be equal with God. And the devil's great activity from the beginning has been an endeavor and an attempt to ruin and to destroy God's work, hence his temptation of men and the ruin which followed. And he has continued this activity ever since. And clearly, his greatest activity of all was manifested when the Son of God came into this world. He attacked him as none other has ever been attacked. And after our Lord had completed his work and had gone back to heaven, well, the devil immediately began to attack the Christian church. And this is his most subtle weapon, the weapon of heresy, an attempt to confuse and to confound the belief of God's people. If only he can succeed in doing that and rob the church of her power, why he has succeeded in a wonderful manner. And so, throughout the centuries, he has been busy in attacking the belief and the creed of the Christian church. Of course, he's also attacked the life. But we are looking at the moment at the mind in Christian, in the Christian life. And the attack of the enemy upon the minds of Christians through the medium of the dissemination of heresies. Now, the heresies have been almost endless. Heresies especially concerning the person of our Lord. Of course, if he can confuse us there, he's achieved everything. If he can make us think that he was only a man or only a god, there's no Christianity left. So he has attacked violently and did in the early days, as we see in the New Testament and in the history of the early church, he made a violent attack upon the person of our Lord. But it wasn't confined to that. He has throughout the centuries tried to create confusion about the death of our Lord, make some people just sentimentalize it, make others take that mystical view which says it's so wonderful you mustn't examine it, and so on. Well, we've been examining all that. But now we come this morning to this great fact and statement concerning the resurrection. And here again we find that the devil has been as active as he has been with regard to the person of our Lord and to the death of our Lord. Because if he again can shake our faith on this most momentous event, as I'm hoping to show you, he really does overthrow and overturn the whole of the Christian faith. Well now, we find from this one chapter, without going any further, how the devil began to do this, even in the early church herself. And the apostle devotes this mighty chapter to the exposure of this grievous and damning evidence which is brought by the devil in this way. The whole chapter, I say, is given to a consideration of this particular heresy with regard to the resurrection. But there are many people today who take up the position of saying, does it matter what we believe about it? Surely, they say, the thing that matters about Easter Sunday, Easter morning like this, is that we all should feel 
that after all spring is coming again, that there's a renew renewal in the whole realm of nature and in the realm of life, and that therefore we should all feel buoyant and hopeful and optimistic and ready to face whatever comes to meet us. Surely, they say, that's the important thing. Life is trying, facts are depressing, the world is a very difficult place to believe, to live in. And surely what matters is that the Christian church should come to people with a message of hope and of encouragement. And as long as she can do that and make people feel a little bit better and happier and lighter in spirit, well, surely she has achieved her end and her object. Now that is what is being said. And people say, surely you're not going to spoil a wonderful morning like this, when we all wake up with a kind of thrill and come and sing these moving hymns, surely you're not going to spoil it all for us by analyzing it and dissecting it and asking questions and saying it's got to be this and mustn't be that. Surely let's enjoy the spirit and the freedom and the thrill of it all. Now there are many who approach this day like that and they say, what do the facts matter? Surely the thing that matters is that we should all get hold of this spirit of hopefulness and of brightness. Well, now, I want to try to show you that that is not how the Apostle Paul approached this matter, this commissioned apostle, this persecuting, blaspheming Pharisee that was laid hold of by the Son of God from the glory on the road to Damascus and put into the ministry, and especially this ministry to the Gentiles. He didn't take that view. What he says later on in this chapter is this. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Be not deceived, he said. This is not a matter of indifference. You can't write loosely to this. You can't say it doesn't matter as long as you have a certain feeling. No, no, says Paul, don't be deceived. Evil communications, wrong talk, wrong thinking, wrong belief, communicates good manners, corrupts good manners, by which he means this. That if you begin to go wrong in your doctrine, you'll soon go wrong in your life also. That you cannot maintain the Christian ethic without the Christian doctrine. Of course, we know the popular view today. We've seen and heard great men on the television and elsewhere saying, Oh, yes, I was once, of course, a local preacher, but now, oh, well, I still believe the Christian ethic, but of course, I no longer believe the doctrine. Now that is, of all heresies, the most damaging and damnable. You cannot do this. You can't hold on to the ethic if you shed the doctrine. And any man who encourages people to do that is an enemy of society, leave alone being an enemy of Christ. And our modern world is as it is because people in their folly have been doing that very thing. Oh no, evil communications corrupt good manners. But we have a second reason. The Apostle says that our belief in the resurrection must be correct. And we must know what that belief is. There must be no uncertainty about it. There is one true view, and all else is wrong. He's dogmatic, he's definite, he's certain. And we must be. Very well, then, let me put it to you like this. The prevailing theory today with regard to the resurrection is just this. That the facts, as I say, as such, do not matter at all. It's the spiritual teaching that matters. Now, that's the popular view. It's very popular on the continent. There's a great movement which talks about demythologizing the gospel. 
What they mean is this. They say, if you want people to believe your gospel in this educated scientific age, you've got to drop all that savers of the miraculous. The modern man's not going to believe that. So you must drop all that demythologize. This is all myth. It isn't fact. Get rid of it all. The people will be ready to listen to your teaching then. And they say the thing that matters is the teaching. And they say, you know, those simple people who wrote the Gospels and these New Testament documents, they really had got hold of the truth, but it's the way in which they put it that was wrong. It's a shame that they did attach it to these facts. They're not facts really, but they do represent something and they do convey a kind of spiritual truth. Now they say what matters is the spiritual truth conveyed, not the facts. They do that not only with the New Testament, but also with the Old Testament. They shed most of the facts, but they say that doesn't matter. It still leaves you with the teaching, with the religious values. Now, the apostle, as it were, has anticipated all this when he wrote this 15th chapter of the first epistle to the Corinthians. You see, there's nothing new about these heresies. They come and go. They put themselves in new language, of course. This demythologizing is the typical sophistication of the 20th century, but it's a heresy that's almost as old as the Christian church herself. The apostle deals with the very thing here. What does he say? Well, let me put it like this. He lays down a great fundamental principle. The Christian salvation is dependent upon facts, upon acts. Now, there is nothing more important than this. This is what we may call the differentia of Christianity. This is the peculiar characteristic of the Christian faith and the Christian message that differentiates it from every other so-called religion and every other philosophy and teaching. We can never say this too frequently. And this is a day of all days when we should emphasize this. Christianity is not just a teaching. It is not just a philosophy. Of course, it is a teaching. It has its philosophy, but it isn't only that. Now, all the other views of life are just that. Your Hinduism, your Mohammedanism, Buddhism, Confucianism, they're all philosophies in the form of religion. Theories, ideas, teachings put forward by men. And that's true of every type of philosophy. Now, this is altogether different. It's not in the same category. Why? Well, for this reason. That what we have in the Bible is not so much a teaching as a record of what God has done. You see the Apostle Peter preaching the first Christian sermon under the auspices of the Christian church on the day of Pentecost at Jerusalem said, and the people had already said before him, they were talking about the wonderful works of God. These people said, well, what is this? What are these strange tongues that these people are talking? We hear every man in our own language talking about the wonderful works of God. And that's what they were talking about. They were not talking about a teaching. They were talking about things that had happened. The wonderful works of God. In other words, Christian teaching is entirely dependent upon facts, upon acts, and upon events. It's not just a detached teaching. It is teaching that is derived from things that have been done. It is the explanation of the things that have been done. So if you take the things that have been done away, you have no teaching. There is no meaning in the teaching. 
Now, this I say is something that is absolutely of crucial importance. Take your Old Testament. What have you got there? Is the Old Testament uh, just a kind of code of morals or of ethics? Well, of course, it's got its Ten Commandments and its moral law. But you, that isn't the significant thing. The significant thing is that it was God who gave that to Moses. It's an act of God. The whole of the Old Testament is that. It's a history book. Here is the world, you see, in confusion after the Tower of Babel. It had already been in trouble at the flood and God did something. Then the confusion at, ba at Babel. And then God does something. He laid his hand on a man called Abram at Ur of the Chaldeans. And he took him out and he said, I'm going to call you Abraham. I'm going to turn you into a nation. And he did so. It's an act. It's something God's done. So it is, right through the Old Testament. Jacob. And what God did through him, sent him down to Egypt, brought him out again. Moses, preserved in that miraculous manner, used in the way that God used him, giving of the law and the whole of the Old Testament record. The facts are absolutely crucial. And that is why you will find in many of the Psalms when Israel was in trouble, what the psalmist does is just to recapitulate the history. He reminds the people of the great events, the great facts. He says, your God is still like that. He's the God who's done these things. He can still do them for you. And of course, when you come to the New Testament, this is the whole point. This is the proclamation. It was given to Zacharias, the son of John the Baptist, to utter it. Something's happening. What is it? Well, not a new teaching has arrived, but God hath visited and redeemed his people. Visited. You'll be visiting your relatives or your friends today and tomorrow, perhaps. You pay a visit. You're doing something. That's what we are talking about. God hath visited. God has come down from heaven to earth. God has visited and redeemed his people. He has visited us in the person of his son. When the fullness of the times was come, God sent forth his son. Facts. It isn't just teaching. God has sent forth his son. Babe of Bethlehem. That's a fact. That's not a fairy tale. It's a fact. You see, it's not a fantasy to which you attach a meaning and a significance as was done by the mystery religions and as people still do. That isn't what we have here. This is a literal fact. A babe in a manger and so on. The boy aged 12, the young carpenter, the man who began to preach at the age of 30. We are given facts. And so on, of course, with everything that he did and supremely his death upon the cross. It's often been pointed out that a disproportionate amount of space is given to the literal facts concerning our Lord's death upon the cross. Why all the details? Well, it's in order to establish in people's minds the fact. The death of Christ on the cross is not a wonderful picture to help us. Do you know it happened? The Son of God really did take unto him human nature. He had a real body and he did suffer. And he bled and he died. And if you don't believe in the facts, you'll never love him as you ought to. He did that for you. The facts. And it's the same with this great fact of the resurrection. The apostle goes on to show us, as I'm going to demonstrate, that there is no forgiveness, no salvation apart from these facts. So what the apostles preached was this. Their preaching was Jesus and the resurrection. 
What did they mean by this? Well, they meant a literal fact. They didn't say, ah, oh, you know, Jesus was crucified and he died, but it's all right, he's still alive in the spiritual realm. He's still influencing us and his memory will be a great help to us. We can still go on living by him. That wasn't what they preached at all. They said he was crucified, he died, he was buried, he was laid in a grave. They put a stone over it and they put a seal on that and they put the soldiers to guard. Nevertheless, the stone was rolled away and he came out literally in that very body. The empty grave. A literal physical resurrection of the Son of God in the body. And he appeared to these chosen witnesses in the body. A changed body, but the same body. Now that is what they preached. The message, therefore, is not the mere persistence of Jesus. It isn't merely that he can still help us and that he's still dwelling in that realm. No, no. What the apostles preached was this. The literal physical resurrection of the Son of God and our literal physical resurrection at a great day which is to come. Those were the two prongs of their message. He is but the first fruits from the dead. He is risen. We shall rise. Literally, physically, in the body. Now, the, the teaching here is not simply that when we die, we'll go on living. It goes beyond that. It says our bodies are going to rise. The whole emphasis in this chapter is upon the literal, physical aspect. With regard to him and with regard to us. And the apostle's argument is that these two aspects of the truth are absolutely essential and vital to a true Christian faith. Now then, how does he do it? How does he prove it? Well, let me put it like this under those two main headings. Why is a belief in the literal physical resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ absolutely essential? Now I must repeat that to make certain that we're all agreed about what I'm talking about. Why is a belief in the literal, physical resurrection of Christ in the body essential to do Christianity? And why is it that those who deny the literal, physical resurrection and who merely teach the spiritual continuation of Christ in some other realm, why is it that they are denying the Christian faith? I'm speaking strongly, I must. The apostle does so, and I'm just here to expound what he said. Well, let me give you his answer. Why is this essential? The first answer is quite simply this. That if Christ had not literally risen physically from the grave, there would quite literally never have been a Christian church at all. And there would be no such thing as Christian preaching. That is where men who abuse this doctrine... They're so blind to the truth. They wouldn't be in Christian pulpits if he hadn't literally risen. There would never have been a church. You remember the story? We are given it in detail. When he was crucified, all the disciples were disappointed and unhappy, crestfallen. They were all disconsolate. The two men on the road to Emmaus said, We had thought that it had been he that would have redeemed Israel, but there would never have been a Christian church. There would have been no Christian preaching. It was the fact 
of the empty grave, his literal physical resurrection and appearance into these people, that gave being to the Christian church at all, and set the Christian preaching on its way. Let me give you a second reason which the apostle puts here. He says that if uh, he has not risen from the dead, he says, yea, we are found false witnesses of God. You see, what the apostles preached was that this Christ had literally risen in the body from the grave. Now, there is no question about that. That is what they preached. And what the apostle says is this, if this isn't true, then we are liars. We are false witnesses. And of course, if you're, if they're liars about that, and if you can't believe their testimony about that, well, why do you believe anything they say? If they can go wrong on a crucial matter like this and invent a story in order to have popularity, well, what's the value in any of, of their teaching? I have no interest in their ethics any longer. If a man's a liar at a crucial point, he's discredited as a witness. That's what the apostle says, we are false witnesses. But of course the thing is quite monstrous. Look at this apostle Paul. He was a great Pharisee. He was one who hated Jesus of Nazareth and all his teaching, regarded him as an imposter. He thought he was doing God's will in persecuting the Christian church and trying to exterminate it. Yet here he is commending this great gospel and rejoicing in it what made him do it. Well, there's only one answer. It is that he had been given to see that Christ is the Son of God. And what showed him that was meeting him on the road to Damascus. He knew the resurrection was a literal fact. That's what makes him a preacher. He says so. Last of all, he was seen of me also as a one born out of due time. A sort of ectopic, he said. So he and all the rest of them, they simply preach this great fact about Jesus having risen from the dead, literally in the body. And if they're wrong about that, well then I say you can attach no credence to anything that they may happen to say. But I can go beyond that. In the third place, you're immediately in trouble with the teaching of our Lord himself. Read your Gospels and you'll find that he prophesied and predicted his death and his resurrection. Compared himself to what happened to Jonah and said a greater than Jonah is here. He foretold his death and the resurrection that should follow repeatedly. He went further and he said that all this had been prophesied in the Old Testament. Now that was his whole argument, wasn't it? With the two men on the road to, to Emmaus. He came to them and he said, Oh, fools, simpletons, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures concerning his death and his resurrection. And he repeated it again back in Jerusalem when he was with the assembled company in that upper room. So you see, if you dispute and deny this, you're denying the teaching of the Lord himself. You're denying the whole of Old Testament prophecy. You are running contrary to the entire revelation. Those are some of the consequences of not believing in the literal physical resurrection, but let's go on. Another vitally important aspect of the matter is this. 
that it was his literal physical rising from the grave that provided the ultimate proof to these apostles that he is indeed the Son of God. Paul never got over this. You remember how therefore he puts it at the beginning of the epistle to the Romans. He says that he is an apostle separated unto the gospel of God concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. You see, it was the resurrection that even convinced that inner circle of his own apostles They were utterly muddled until he began to appear to them. And then they knew. They knew who he was. It was the last proof that he is the Son of God. The first to rise from the dead. The first to conquer death and the grave to take out the sting. The proof that he is the Son of God. They'd never have preached him as the Son of God were it not for the resurrection. I'm merely giving you a number of arguments as they're displayed by the apostle. Here's another. Their literal physical resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the final proof of the fact that his work in dying for us on the cross and for our sins was rarely sufficient. That God's justice and God's law rarely had been satisfied. That's the question. The moment you believe in the justice and the righteousness and the holiness of God as revealed in his holy law, you see that any sinner is under condemnation. And that the punishment of sin is death. Then comes a message which says Jesus has died for our sins. But how do I know that? How can I be sure? How can I be satisfied that he really did it? That the full demands of the law have really been met? There's only one answer. The resurrection. Death didn't defeat him. He defeated it. He satisfied it fully in its every demands. And he rose triumphant over it all. So that a very crucial text is this, Romans 4.25. Delivered for our offenses, raised again for our justification. You see, what God is doing in the resurrection is this. He's making an announcement, a proclamation. And what he is announcing is that Christ has paid the penalty. That the law is fully satisfied. And here he's announcing it that any who believe in him shall be justified freely from every sin they've ever committed. But you couldn't preach that without the resurrection. It doesn't, it isn't enough to say, oh, he's there in the spiritual realm. How do I know that? How can I be certain? This is a fact. Thank God it's a fact. He rose in the body. The whole person. And by that I know that I am justified. But let me go on to a sixth point. If he hadn't risen literally in the physical body, I should never be quite sure that he'd conquered all my enemies. Because my enemies are not merely the world and the flesh and the devil. The last enemy is death. Death is the enemy of men. It came in as the result of sin. It is the devil who controls the power of death, according to Hebrews 2. And the Son of God has come into this world to destroy the works of the devil. 
And if he hadn't conquered death in the grave, if he hadn't risen literally in the physical body, he would not have conquered the last enemy. He would not have conquered death. And he would have failed. There would have been one thing unconquered. But he's the son of God. He's the eternal savior. And he's conquered every enemy. The last enemy that shall be conquered is death. But he's conquered it. Thanks be unto God that giveth us the victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Death is swallowed up in victory. And I only know that as I believe in his literal physical resurrection. You're robbing him of the ultimate of his great victory if you don't believe in this as a literal fact. And then I come to my seventh and my last argument displayed here by the great apostle. He puts it like this, you remember. If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. You are yet in your sins. If he really hasn't fully satisfied the Lord, if he hasn't conquered every single enemy, well, then you are under the power of the enemy still. Which means that you're still in your sins, that you're still unforgiven, that you'll still go to punishment and to perdition. You are yet in your sins. Your faith is vain. You say, I believe this beautiful thing. I believe God is love and he'll forgive me. It's all nonsense. It's vain. It's empty. If this isn't true, this is God's way of giving you forgiveness. And if you don't believe this, you haven't got forgiveness. Is it conceivable that God would ever have sent his son into this sinful world and allowed him to endure the contradiction of sinners against himself and allowed him especially to suffer the shame and the agony of the cross? If it wasn't absolutely essential, would he ever have been buried if he didn't have to happen that he might conquer death in the grave? This is God's way of making forgiveness. And there is no forgiveness apart from this. If Christ be not risen, your faith is vain, and yet you are yet in your sins. Then are they also which have fallen asleep in Christ are perished. It's all a delusion. Well, there are the main arguments under that heading. I must say a word about the second. You see, the heresy that had already crept in the Corinthian church was this, that there is no such thing as resurrection. That it's just a continuation in another realm, in another life, a kind of spiritism. Now, says the apostle, we've got to believe the two things. We've got to believe, first, that he literally rose, and secondly, that we also shall literally rise. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that are slept? For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive, but every man in his own order. Christ the first fruits, afterward, they that are Christ that is coming. So you see, we've got to believe in literal physical resurrection, first as regards the Lord Jesus Christ, and then equally as regards ourselves. But says somebody, does that really matter? Does anything matter except this, that I know that if I believe in Christ when I die, I shall go to be with Christ, I shall go to a realm of great happiness and great bliss and great holiness and great joy. Why bother about the body? Why all this fuss about the physical frame? What's that matter? Why are you spoiling everything by dragging in the body as it were? All I want to know is that I shall see him and be in that wonderful realm. But the Apostle Paul won't have that. 
Indeed, he is furious against that, not only in this chapter, but you'll find him saying the same thing in the second epistle to Timothy, and in the second chapter, and especially in verse 18. Let me read it to you. He is dealing with these heretics. Beginning at the 16th verse, he says, But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. And their word will eat as doth a canker, a cancer, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have heard, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, and let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. What does it all mean? Well, he says, these men, Hymenaeus and Philetus, like a cancer, gnawing and eating at the vitals of the body and doing their devilish and destructive work, overturning the faith of some, and how are they doing it? Well, their preaching was that the resurrection is past already. What did they mean? Well, this is what they meant. There are many followers of Hymenaeus and Philetus today. I'm afraid there may be some in this congregation. Do you recognize your parents? Ye followers of Hymenaeus and Philetus, this is what they said. Oh, they said, you mustn't believe in this literal physical resurrection. There's no resurrection to come. The resurrection has taken place already. Well, how? Well, they said this. It's, uh, they said something purely spiritual. The resurrection, they said, really means being born again, becoming a new man in Christ Jesus. It's a, it's a rebirth. It's a rebeginning. It's, that's just resurrection. They said, don't materialize this. Don't bother about your body. The great thing is that you're a new man. You pass through this spiritual resurrection. So the resurrection is passed already. And they were scouting this emphasis upon the literal physical aspect and spiritualizing the entire teaching. I am suggesting to you that that's the major heresy in the Christian church this morning. But the apostle denounces it. He says it's a cancer, it's a foul growth. Avoid it, he says, as the very plague. Well, now, why must we avoid this? And why must we believe in the resurrection of our bodies? Oh, this truth has been so sadly neglected amongst Christian people. Why? Well, let me show you. If you don't believe in this, well, again, your whole conception of your own personal salvation is very incomplete. This is the way to look at it. Man was made by God, body, soul, and spirit. Perfect in every department. Body and soul, if you like, doesn't matter. I don't care whether you're bipartite or tripartite in your view of men. doesn't make the slightest difference. Because the two views are agreed in this. That an essential part of man is his body, his physical frame. God made body and soul and spirit. And it was all perfect in the image of God. But then the tempter came. And man in his unutterable folly listened to the suggestion of the tempter and he fell. He became a sinner. How did he fall? Did he only fall in his spirit or in his soul? Oh no. He fell in his spirit, in his soul, and in his body. The whole of men is fallen. 
These bodies of ours were not meant to be as they are. They're never meant to be weak. They're never meant to be frail. They're never meant to be diseased. They're never meant to have blemishes. They're never meant to be a kind of burden which we have to carry as we go through this world. The body was never meant to be like this. This is the body of our humiliation. This is the body of sin. This is the body of the fall. The world wasn't meant to be as it is this morning. They were never meant to be thorns and briars. They were never meant to be viruses and germs and diseases. The bodies, the world is formed. Everything fell when men fell. God cursed the earth. Everything's fallen. That is what sin has done to men and to the whole universe. And my dear friend, you think God, when he sends his son into this world to redeem it, is going to leave anything unfinished? No, no, God's work is always perfect. And if you leave out any aspect, you're robbing God of his glory. And you say that God has failed in some respect. Man has fallen, spirit, soul, body, every part of it. But you say, I'm only interested in spiritual salvation. I'm only interested in my mind being delivered, my soul being delivered. I'm not interested in this old body. When I die, I'll leave that behind and I'll be shot of it. I'll be rid of it and I'll be all... No, no, you mustn't rob God of his glory. God's going to save the whole man. The body as well as the spirit. Now, how is it that we can miss this? Let me show you how the apostle emphasizes it in many places. Take, for instance, Romans chapter 8, verse 11. Take verse 10 first. If Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Jesus from the dead, he that raised up Christ from the dead, shall also quicken your mortal body. By his spirit that dwelleth in you. You heard that announcement about my lecturing here on Friday nights about the epistle to the Romans. I've been on this eighth chapter for a very long time. And this is the sort of thing that's detained us, you see. And what a glorious thing it is. Your mortal body is going to be raised. Listen to him saying the same thing in the 24th verse of that same chapter. Or let me start again a bit earlier. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves, we ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. That's the thing he's waiting for, the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. He says exactly the same thing in 2 Corinthians 4, 14. Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise us up also by Jesus and shall present us with you. Then listen to him in that mighty statement at the end of the third chapter of the epistle to the Philippians. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Our conversation, our citizenship is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, this body of our humiliation, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, the body of his glorification, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. There it is. And it's the whole point of this great 15th chapter 
of this first epistle to the Corinthians. We shall be changed. First the natural, then that which is spiritual. This corruptible must give way to the incorruptible, the glorious body. Man redeemed, spirit, soul, and the very body. No more disease, no more weakness, no more pain, no blemish. A glorious body, like his body in his resurrection. Oh, my dear friend, salvation would be incomplete if I didn't believe that this very body of mine is going to be redeemed and to be made perfect. Oh, let me put it finally like this. This belief is essential to a true understanding of the glorious kingdom that is coming. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. What's he mean? Well, what he means is this. He says, you know, you only get a little bit of your salvation in this world. This is just the first installment. This is but a tasting of the first fruits. What salvation? Oh, I'll tell you what salvation is. It isn't just to have your sins forgiven. It isn't just to have happiness while you're in this life and in this world. It is all that, thank God. But the great thing about salvation is the blessed hope, the kingdom that is coming. He goes on to speak about that at once. Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. He put all things under his feet. And then he says, there is a time coming when he shall have subdued all unto him. The Son himself also shall be subject unto him who put all things under him that God may be all and in all. What's it mean? Well, here it is. Christ's work of salvation is not complete. Not only until your body and mine has been redeemed and glorified and made perfect again, but until the same thing is true of the whole cosmos, the earth's going to be redeemed. The whole creation is groaning and travailing only until he comes, waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. The Son of God is going to come back. And what for? Well, he's going to do something to this physical universe. Not only my physical body, but the very cosmos, the universe, is going to be purged of sin. The elements will melt with a fervent heat. Evil is going to be destroyed, purged out. There shall be a new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness, the kingdom of God, coming down the new Jerusalem, descending from heaven, and you and I shall be in it. The Christian hope is not some nirvana. It isn't a mere spiritual state, whereas disembodied spirits, we shall enjoy ourselves. No, no. We are going to live in this new world, the new heavens and the new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. We shall be in this old world that we've known as a world of sin and shame and sorrow and volcanoes and earthquakes and all the rest of it. And we shall see it as paradise, as God made it at the beginning, and as he's going to make it anew again, having taken all vestiges of sin out of it. And, you know, we shall walk about it. We shan't float in the air. My feet, glorified feet, shall walk the streets of this heavenly city. I shall march in the kingdom of God. I shall eat and drink with the Son of God in it, not a disembodied spirit, but in my new and glorified body, in a new earth, under a new heaven, the whole cosmos renovated and renewed. That is salvation. Now, the Apostle Paul, for me to close, has put all this 
in one great statement at the beginning of the epistle to the Ephesians. First chapter, verses 9 and 10. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. When the devil fell, there was a cosmic disturbance. When man fell, the whole creation suffered. And salvation is not complete and completed until it has all been perfectly restored. Oh, hold on to the resurrection of the literal physical body. It's a great mystery. As Paul goes on to say in this great chapter, don't try to understand it, you never will. But your body, your body and mind are going to be changed, glorified, made like unto his, and we shall dwell in him with him in his eternal kingdom under the new heaven in the new earth. Every enemy destroyed finally and God all in all and you and I his children basking in the sunshine of his face and possessing and owning and sharing with him in the glories of his eternal kingdom. Thank God for a literal physical resurrection of the Lord and of myself. Amen. The closing hymn is hymn number 148. Shall we sing verses 1, 3, and 5 of hymn number 148?
and to him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. And may grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now throughout the remainder of this hour, short, uncertain earthly life and pilgrimage, and until he shall come in glory, and we shall be glorified and dwell forever with the Lord. Amen. Amen. All right. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to listen to the follow-up sermon to this one that was preached one week later. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, another Martin Lloyd-Jones sermon on this same passage. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. Welcome to Build a God. How can I help you? Hi, I got this Build a God certificate from a fellow co-worker, and I came to check it out. Oh, that's nice of your friend. You must be excited. Well, uh, what exactly are we doing here? Oh, you silly man. We're building your very own deity. I don't feel comfortable doing this. Seems sort of like blasphemy. Oh, don't be silly. Everyone does this. Let me help you. First off, you decide whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Well, the Bible talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it also says that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, so he has to be male. You? Okay... Next, we have to define the attributes of your God, like whether he's loving, kind, or compassionate. Well, in the Bible, God is just, he's merciful, he's righteous, and he's wrathful, all at the same time. Okay, then. Well, what is your God's take on sin? He fully condemns it. It's pretty obvious what God thinks of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Humanity's only hope is in the blood Jesus shed on the cross. Are you saying your God doesn't accept gays? Don't think so. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with hellfire and brimstone because of it. I don't think he has a very high opinion of it. Could you excuse me for one moment? Sure. Hello? Can you get me the mall security? Thank you. 
Sir, I would be a religious terrorist here. Yes! He's a closed-minded Bible believer. Yes, I'll distract him while I wait for your men to arrive. Thank you. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Listening to this program right now. Have you ever found yourself wishing there was more Fighting for the Faith content that you could listen to and share with your friends? Well, you're in luck, because we now at Pirate Christian Media have a YouTube channel that we upload content to on a weekly basis. We got programs like Twist Busters, You Don't Have to Be a Cessationist, Messed Up Church, Exclusive Skype Interviews, Pirate Gang Conversations, and our most popular segment, Dumpster Fire. So if you're looking for some extra Pirate Christian Media goodness in your life, head on over to YouTube and search for Fighting for the Faith and subscribe. And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. (laughs) To err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor somehow turns the resurrection of Jesus into resurrecting your dead dreams or something. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you're going to see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew, the other says become a patron. 
Yeah, that's right. When you uh, join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew. Rank is based upon your monthly financial commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month and Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or if you'd like to become a patron on Patreon, click on the Become a Patron button. And of course, if you would like to support us the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. And then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is sermon number two. We just decided, let's just go for it. Sermon number two, which was delivered the week after this one, and it is titled, If Christ Be Not Risen. It is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 12. Here again is Martin Lloyd-Jones. Christ be preached that he rose from the dead. How say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, I began reading there at the 12th verse. Well, simply because, whether right or wrong, it has become the custom in the Christian church not to have an unusually long reading. My reading was already longer than usual. I still am not quite happy in my mind that I didn't read the whole chapter to you. But let me read a bit of the early portion leading up to that 12th verse. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which you also received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that's to say, the chief thing he says in my preaching when I came to you was this, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve, after that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles that am not made to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach and so ye believe. Then he puts his question. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Well, now, my friends, I think we'll all agree about one thing at any rate before we go any further. That this is one of the greatest chapters in the whole Bible, unless it is indeed actually the greatest of all. It's grand, isn't it, as literature? Even if you're not a Christian, you must have appreciated this chapter. It's a magnificent piece of literature with its 
glory and beauty of language, the balance of its phrasing. And then you must agree that it is amazing and quite astonishing as a bit of reasoning and of argumentation. You notice the logic, you notice the way he handles his material and presents his case. But over and above all that, it is great and extraordinary as an exposition of vital Christian doctrine, and in particular, the doctrine of the resurrection. Now, what is this doctrine of the resurrection? Well, it is the preaching, as he reminds them there at the very beginning of the chapter, that uh, the Christ who died for our sins on the Good Friday was also buried but that he also rose again the third day. Now, when he says that, he means that he rose literally in the body. The whole argument of the whole chapter, as you see, is that Christ rose in the body, that the body that was dying on the cross, and that did die, and that was buried, that that very body rose, that our Lord literally rose physically in the body. And as he says, manifested himself uh, to certain chosen witnesses and then later ascended into heaven. Now that is the New Testament doctrine of the resurrection. Not merely that our Lord goes on existing, but that he literally rose in the body. The whole emphasis, as I say, is upon the body. Now, why did the apostle ever write the chapter? And of course, we've already given the answer by selecting the twelfth verse as our peculiar text. He wrote the chapter because of the situation that had arisen in the church of Corinth. The church had been established, as he reminds them, by his preaching. Men and women had heard this message, which he delivered at the beginning, with this prominence to the death of Christ and burial and resurrection, and they had entered joyfully into the Christian church and were members of the church. But after the departure of the great apostle, other people had come along and had begun to say that there was no such thing as resurrection. He said, they said, this apostle Paul, so-called, he taught you that you're all going to rise, that death isn't the end, but that you're all going to rise in the body and appear before God in judgment and then go on to your eternity. They said, this is all wrong. There's no such thing as resurrection. No, they said, death is the end. That when a man dies, well, that's the end of the story, and that there's no more to it. You see, there's nothing new in that. Some people think that uh, the hallmark of modernity is to deny uh, the resurrection, and all the miraculous supernatural elements. They think that is the peculiar thing about the men of 1964. All the fools who lived before him, they believed the Bible and its teaching, but modern men, grown up, come of age, learned, scientific, he knows. My dear friend, there were people saying things like that nearly 2,000 years ago. That's why the apostle had to write this great chapter. And therefore its argument is as relevant tonight as it was when he first wrote it. But now here is the question. Does this matter? Does it matter whether you believe in the resurrection or not? Let me go further. Does any Christian doctrine matter? I'm putting my question like that in its modern form for this reason, that the whole tendency today is to say that doctrine doesn't matter at all. 
You can scarcely pick up a paper. I mean by that even secular papers, but that you'll someone or other find this idea in it. It's in the learned weekly journals and so on. The whole idea today is this, that nothing matters but conduct and behavior and practice. And that the Christian teaching is very good in this respect, that the Christian ethic, the Christian moral teaching is one of the best that the world has ever known, not the only one, but one of the best, and therefore it's right to pay some attention to it. But they say, for heaven's sake, get rid of all that doctrine that's attached to it. All this about uh, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the wonderful teacher, being the son of God, and uh, that there was a miracle when he was born, the virgin birth. Get rid of all that nonsense and his miracles, and the fact that he rose from the grave. Get rid of all that nonsense. Stick to the ethic and the morality, but... Don't ask us to believe the doctrines. Doctrines don't matter. Indeed, they're a hindrance and an incubus. Let's all get on with the matter of practical life and living. Doctrine doesn't matter at all. Now, that's the tendency today. And unfortunately, it's not only the tendency outside the church, but inside the church. That's the modern teaching, that doctrines don't matter doesn't matter whether a man believes in the literal physical resurrection or not, as long as he's trying to live a good life and imitating the example of Jesus. Now, there's the question that is before us. Now, the whole point of this great chapter of 58 verses is just to give the lie direct to this modern teaching. And it's especially concerned to show that this antithesis which is being made between doctrine and practice, is utterly unreal. Indeed, the Apostle's whole point is to show that doctrine and life and living are inextricably bound together and are utterly interdependent. He puts it in a, in a very notable and in a very striking phrase. Here is his phrase. Be not deceived, he says, in the 33rd verse. Evil communications corrupt good manners. He means by that, accepting wrong teaching, false conversation, false ideas, evil communications corrupt good manners. He said you can't divorce teaching from life. You can't separate doctrine from ethic and from morality. Now that's the great argument of the whole chapter. He says this is one of the consequences of this. And it's not only the great argument of this chapter, it is the argument of the whole of the Bible. This same apostle puts it in a very striking manner in his first chapter of his epistle to the Romans, where he says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold down the truth in unrighteousness. You notice how he puts it? Ungodliness always leads to unrighteousness. Now, I come back to this because it seems to me that this is of the very essence of the modern problem. All thinking, intelligent men are concerned about the state of society. It isn't only the Christian who is concerned about the state of society. Any man who has any sense of responsibility, any social sense, any civic sense, must be alarmed at the state and condition of affairs in this country and in the whole world. But you see, the fatal error is this, that they will persist in thinking that you can get good social order, that you can get ethical and moral conduct and behavior apart from godliness, 
Now, the whole message of the Bible is just to say that that's impossible. That all men's troubles eventuate from the fact that he's got into the wrong relationship with God. And that he will never be right in his life and living until first he is right with God. It's the message of the Bible right from the beginning to the very end. Now here it is, I say, put in the very summary, succinct manner by the great apostle in this tremendous chapter. Our view of life determines how we live. As a man thinketh, so he is, so he does. There is nothing, therefore, which is more important than that we should believe the truth, that we should have a right philosophy, if you like, a right outlook. And the apostle, therefore, is vitally concerned about this. And so he argues it out in this tremendous manner. What he says is this. That without the resurrection, there is indeed no Christian message at all. Now, you see the exact opposite being said to they drop the resurrection. They say, you still got your Christian message. You haven't, says Paul. And here's one of the apostles, remember. Here is one of the foundations of the Christian church. The church is founded upon the apostles and prophets. And he says that if you deny the resurrection, our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain, you are yet in your sins, there is no gospel at all. It's absolutely essential. That's his whole contention. If there's no such thing as resurrection, he says, then Christ isn't risen. And if Christ isn't risen, well, then there is no message, there is no good news, there is no salvation, there is no redemption. Well, now then, my friends, what I want to do tonight is this. I want to try to hold the essence of this great argument before you. I've read the whole chapter to you now. You see, it's one great argument. And every single step in it is absolutely vital. The great apostle doesn't waste his word. He goes from step to step and stage to stage. He builds up his tremendous case. And then he just worships God. Let's try and follow him. Let's do it in this way. What is the position in which we find ourselves if we don't believe in the resurrection? What does that really say? What, what does it involve us in? What is the position of men and women tonight who don't believe in the resurrection? Well, I suggest that, uh, according to the great apostle, and indeed, as I say, according to the whole Bible, uh, this is the position in which you're left. He tells us something immediately about man himself. If there is no resurrection, well, then man is an animal. And he is no different from the animal. When the animal dies, well, that's the end. The end of the story. There's nothing further. When an animal dies, when a flower dies, it's the end of the story. Finished. Nothing further. I say, therefore, if there is no resurrection, man is just an animal. There's no such thing as the soul. There is no such thing as that immaterial something that is in men that links him to eternity. There is nothing in men which enables us to say of him that he cries out for an ampler ether, a diviner air, that there's that in him which 
makes him capable of communion with the beyond, the unseen, and the eternal. There's nothing there. That's all that's wrong. There's no ultimate relationship to God. Indeed, there's no ultimate relationship to anything outside this life, outside the seen, the visible, the material, all this which is like man himself and round and about him. So if you don't believe in the resurrection, you no longer believe that this life is but a preliminary to another life. You don't believe in eternity beyond time. You don't believe that uh, man's life in this world is a place of responsibility. You don't believe any longer that uh, what a man does in this world determines his eternal future. No, no, this world is the only world, and uh, when a man's life comes to an end in this world, well, then it's, it's just the end. As you can switch out these electric lights, a man's life is snuffed out. There's the end. No more to be said. Dust and art to dust returns. You don't go on with Longfellow to say, Dust and art to dust returns was not spoken of the soul. You say there isn't a soul. There's nothing. The end, death is the end, and there it ends. That's one inevitable result of not believing in the resurrection. It involves your view of man immediately. Man is nothing but a glorified animal. You can say he's a reasoning animal, if you like. You can boast that his cerebrum is more highly developed than that of most animals. All right, say what you will, but he's still an animal. And his end is that of an animal, and there's no more to it. He hasn't got this thing, the soul, that differentiates a man from an animal. It's not there. Secondly, they follows from the first that there is obviously, therefore, ultimately, no purpose in moral striving whether it be Christian moral striving or any other moral striving, there is really no purpose in it. Now listen to this in the words of the Apostle. He says, why stand we in jeopardy every hour? In other words, he says, why is my life constantly in danger? Because the Apostle's life was a very dangerous life. He was persecuted for preaching this gospel. People many times tried to kill him. He was beaten with 39 stripes, he tells us, twice over. He suffered shipwrecks. He'd tell you all about that in his second epistle to the Corinthians in chapter 11 and 12. He underwent the most terrible trials. His life was constantly in jeopardy. I protest by your rejoicing which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. He says, my life's always in my hands. I never know when I'm going to come to an end. And he was arrested, of course, more than once. He was put on trial and finally he was put to death. I die daily. He says, if after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead rise not? He said, why did I risk my life, as it were, there in Ephesus, in defending this Christian faith? If it isn't true, if there is no resurrection, why did I fight with those beasts at Ephesus? What advantage is there if the dead rise not? He says, there's only one conclusion to come to. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And you see, I think his logic is something that you can't refute. What's the point of denying yourself? What's the point of trying to exercise a measure of discipline in your conduct and in your behavior? If there is nothing after this life and after this world. In other words, 
Why not enjoy ourselves when, while we are here and indulge ourselves? Oh, but says somebody, I've got ethical theories. I believe that everybody should live a certain kind of life. But my dear friend, why? I have as much right to say as you have to say that you're an idealist and that you believe in a measure of discipline for the sake of your ideals. I may say to you, but I don't accept your ideals. To me, life is eating. And the better the food, the more I enjoy myself, and then let's have some drink with it. Let us eat and drink. I'm not interested in your idealism, but I'm tremendously interested in drink. I get a great kick out of it. I really do get some pleasure and happiness there. I say, therefore, I hold the same view as you do about men. You talk about ideals and ask me to sacrifice. I'm not interested. I want to enjoy myself. That's your way of enjoying yourself. This is my way of enjoying myself. Why isn't mine as good as yours? And you know, you've really got no answer. There is no answer. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Indeed, it seems to me that there's very little point in going on living. If this is the only life and if death is the end, well then, if you find you're in trouble and in difficulty, why bother to go on with it? What a fool you are. Why don't you go out of it? Then you'd get rest and peace. You'd have no worries. You'd have no trials. You'd have no illnesses. You'd have no sicknesses. You'd just be finished. It would have been the end of you. Why go on living? Why not commit suicide? Why not go out by that back door? Why not? If there is no resurrection, if there is no future life, there's no point, I say, in enduring hardships and pain. But why trouble to try and make the world any better? Most people dislike being exhorted to live a better life. They want to be left alone, to live as they want to live, and to enjoy themselves. Why bother to educate people? Indeed, there is a terrible inconsistency, it seems to me, in the position of large numbers of people at the present time. They say they don't believe in the soul, they don't believe in God, they don't believe in any life after this life, they don't believe in any world apart from this world, and yet they seem to get very excited about trying to put an end to war and to abolish the bombs. But it's inconsistent. What's the point of going on living? If the bomb explodes and destroys us all, well then there's no more trouble, there's no more worry. Let's explode the bomb and finish it. What's the point of going on? Why extend it? Because we all know trouble, we all know suffering, we all know heartache, we all have grief and sorrow, infirmities come on and old age. Why bother with it all? Why not blow it all up? It's inconsistent. Why do you want to prolong this life? Why do you want to stop wars? Why do you want to banish the bombs? If you don't believe in God and the soul and the eternal existence. If this life is nothing but something which is full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Well then I say the sooner the better it all comes to an end. There's no point in it at all. Evil communications corrupt good manners. And we are experiencing the moral declension of the present time simply because men and women no longer know about the supernatural. It's because they've lost their knowledge of God and their knowledge of themselves and the soul and the true dignity of manhood that morals are collapsing, evil communications, corrupt good manners. It's inevitable. But thirdly, if there is no resurrection of the dead, well, then, there's no comfort. There's no consolation. There's no hope. There's nothing to look forward to. When things go wrong, when disaster visits you, 
There's nothing to be said. You just put up with it as best you can. Press back your shoulders, set a firm upper lip, stick it. But what's the point, I say, even of sticking it? Why not get out of it? Why not go the same way yourself? There's no hope for the individual. There's no hope for the world. There's no point in history. History is not working to an end. There is no end. Except death. Finished. There's no purpose in anything at all. There's no hope in any. The apostle has said this very plainly in writing to the Ephesians in the second chapter. He puts it there. He says to those pagans who now have become Christians, he says at that time you were strangers from the covenants of promise and aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You were without hope, without God in the world. That is the position. The pagans were without hope. They were trying to conjure up a hope. But what a hopeless business. Their whole idea was of some future existence, shadowy, insecure, uncertain, vague, nebulous, no, no, without hope. Well, now there is the position, according to the apostle, if there be no resurrection of the dead. But my dear friends, we are here tonight because all that is just a lie, the lie of the devil, the lie of men, the victim and the serpent, the dupe of the devil. But now is Christ risen from the dead. It's not true. All that isn't true. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ proves that that is not true. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, he says, proves that there is a resurrection of the dead. These two things go together. His resurrection, our resurrection. But now here's the vital question, therefore. Has Christ risen from the dead? The apostle says, yes, it's a fact. And again, I want to emphasize the importance of our realizing that this is a fact. I'm not in this pulpit tonight simply to tell you that Christ goes on influencing this world, either through his memory or his teaching, or even in some vague spiritual sense. I'm here to tell you that the Christ who died on the cross on Calvary's hill on that first Good Friday and was buried in a grave, literally came out of that grave in the body. It was a changed body, as the apostle goes on to say. It was a glorified body, but he came out in the body. The grave was empty. He arose in the body, manifested himself. This is the evidence. You notice, he takes the trouble to give you evidence. What is it? Well, he says the evidence is this. He was seen of Cephas, Peter, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of about five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me also, as a kind of ectopic one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles that I'm not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But he says, I saw him, I have seen the risen Christ. He's referring to what happened on the road to Damascus. Well, now you notice that the fact, therefore, is established by the witness of the apostle. Now, you say, what's that got to do with me? Well, it's got this to do with you, that you wouldn't be here at this minute were it not for the apostle. You see, were it not for this witness of the apostles, there would never have been such a thing as the Christian church. The Bible itself tells us of the condition of these apostles after the crucifixion of their Lord. They were all utterly downcast. They all felt completely hopeless. They said, we had hoped, we had thought. 
that the kingdom was to be restored to us by this man. We thought that he was the Messiah. Ah, but we were wrong. We were deluded. We were so powerful we thought he worked miracles. He could even raise the dead. And yet when the soldiers came, he seemed to be utterly ineffective and completely weak. They arrested him and they tried him and they condemned him and they nailed him to a tree and he was completely helpless. He could do nothing at all. We had hoped that he was the Messiah, but we wasn't. We were wrong. They were completely downcast, completely hopeless. And there would never have been a Christian church at all if Christ hadn't risen from the dead. Read the ends of your four Gospels. Read the book of the Acts of the Apostles at the beginning, and there you will see it so clearly. Why should these men have tried to invent something? Why should they court persecution and death for an invention? Why shouldn't they just lie low and keep quiet and say nothing, having made this tragic blunder of thinking that Jesus, the carpenter, was the Messiah of God? Why not try to get everybody to forget it as quickly as possible? Why prolong their troubles and get greater troubles? Why risk life and limb and everything if it was all a lie and a concoction? The thing is monstrous. The essence of wisdom and of common sense for them would have been to say nothing but to keep quiet until everybody had forgotten everything about Jesus of Nazareth. But they did the exact opposite. And they went and they told everybody that Christ had risen from the dead and that they'd seen him and that he'd sent them out to tell the world that he had risen, that they were witnesses of his resurrection. The apostolic witness proves it. But there is something in addition to the apostolic witness. And that is the apostolic power. Read your Gospels again and you see these men as weaklings, ignorant, failures. Look at them in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. See them thrilling with power, filled with authority, speaking with a boldness, able to work miracles, numbers of men and women believing their message. What is this? Power? Where have they got it? Well, you ask them and they'll give you the answer. Peter and John were going up to the temple to say their prayers one afternoon. And suddenly they passed a man who was seated there on the pavement. They used to carry him there every day. He was a paralyzed poor fellow. He'd never been able to walk. A man over 38 years of age. They put him to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to ask alms of the people who went into the temple. He sees Peter and John coming and he asked alms of them. And they hadn't got anything to give. And so Peter and John looking upon him fixed their eyes upon him and Peter said, Silver and gold have I none. But such as I have, give I thee, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he arose immediately, and his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he went walking and leaping and praising God into the temple. Power! And the whole populace came together and said, what is this? Who are these men? And Peter answered and said, we haven't done this. It isn't any power or any goodness or godliness in us that has enabled us to do this. What is it then? Ah, says Peter, this is Jesus of Nazareth. His name, through faith in his name, hath given this man this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. They were transformed men. They were filled with power. Where did they get it? The risen Christ had sent the Spirit upon them, and they were filled with the power so that they could scarcely recognize themselves. Apostolic testimony, apostolic power. 
And we can add to that the whole subsequent history of the Christian church. There's no greater miracle in the world tonight than the persistence of the Christian church. What does the Christian church consist of? Well, it consists of men and women like me. And if any body of people are guaranteed to ruin any institution, it's people like me. And yet here's the Christian church still going in 1964, filled with people like me and like you. For you are exactly as I am. There's no difference. And Christian people, we say to our shame, have done their best to ruin the church and bring her to an end many, many times. They've been so dull and stupid, they listen to any false prophet or any false teacher. And yet the church goes on. What is it? Oh, it's the power of this risen Christ that has so often come back and infused his own might into a moribund institution and raised her again to another period of reformation and of revival. Well, there is the evidence in general. But now let me ask the crucial question. Why is all this so important? Why should we believe in this resurrection of Christ? What's it mean? And the New Testament is perfectly plain in its answer to that question. It is the resurrection that ultimately established the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. He is the first begotten of the dead. He is the firstborn from among the dead. He is the first to rise. All had died before him. Lazarus had been resuscitated by him but died later. Here is one who rises from the dead, never to die again. The first begotten from the dead. So the apostle puts it in writing to the Romans that this Jesus was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, but declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from among the dead. Here is one who's gone through death and has emerged complete and whole. He's son of God. So you see, the message of the first preachers was Jesus and the resurrection. The resurrection had proved to them finally that he was what he'd claimed to be, the son of God. Now the Gospels are so honest. They tell you that the disciples were very slow to believe that he is the Son of God. And when he died, they lost all hope. He came back and they saw it. They, it proved that he is indeed the Son of God. But, here's the question. If Jesus of Nazareth then is the Son of God, as is proved by the resurrection, what was he doing in this world? Why did he ever come into this world? And especially, of course, we want to ask this question. If Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, why was he ever crucified? Why did he ever die in weakness? Why did he allow himself to be arrested? Why didn't he perform a miracle and ascend to heaven in a chariot? Why did he die in utter helplessness? Here's the question. Why did he come? Why did he do these things? Why did he die? Why did he rise again? What's the answer? The apostle gives us the answer. And did you notice what it was? Jesus of Nazareth, he says, is the second man. Jesus of Nazareth, he says, is the lost Adam. 
Do you remember this contrast? The first men is of the earth earthy. The second men is the Lord from heaven. The first Adam was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Now this is the tremendous statement. This, my friend, is Christianity. Christianity is not just a matter of living a good life and of being ethical and moral and trying to improve the world. You can be all that without being a Christian at all. A Christian is a man who believes this. Jesus of Nazareth, risen from the dead. Who is he? What is he? He's the second man. He's the last Adam. What does this mean? Well, you see, it means this. I'm giving you a summary of the message of the whole Bible tonight. The second men is to be contrasted with the first men. The last Adam is to be contrasted with the first Adam. What's it mean? Well, it means this. That man, that first man, Adam, was created in the image and the likeness of God. Man is not an animal. Man is made in the image and the likeness of God. God breathed into him the breath of life, and he became a living soul. Man is the Lord of creation. Man is different from creation. Man has been endowed with certain faculties and propensities that liken him even to God. He's got a mind, he's got a reason, he's got understanding. He can stand outside himself and look at himself objectively. He can criticize himself and evaluate himself. An animal cannot. Man is a living soul. He stands before God. He's responsible to God. He's a great being, different from all creation. He's above it all. He's the Lord of it all because he's made in the image and likeness of God and he's meant to live a life in connection with God. That's how the first man was made. And he was made the head and the representative of the whole of the human race. But something's gone wrong. What's this Christ doing here? What's this second man? What's this last Adam? Who is he? Why is he come? Why is he necessary? Oh, the answer's all here. And this is the answer as the apostle puts it. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. God made men perfect in his own image. Man was not made to die. My dear friends, death was never intended in this world. Man was made innocent and with the possibility of living to all eternity. God didn't create death. Man was like God and enjoyed God. There was no sin in paradise. There was no evil. There was no unhappiness. There was no strife. There was no war. There was no lust. There was no passion. It was glory. It was paradise. But we don't see that, do we? We are in a world of sin. We are in a world of death. We are in a world of shame. Where's it all come from? Oh, that first Adam. He rebelled against God. He wanted to be like God himself. He wasn't content with being men. He wanted to understand the infinite and be like him. He wanted to have all power in his own hands as he still does. And thus he fell. And in rebelling and sinning and falling, he brought upon himself terrible consequences. He lost his original righteousness. He lost the face of God. He lost the knowledge of God. He lost power to resist the devil and evil. He became the slave of the devil. He became subject to death. 
He entered, began in the warfare against the devil and all his power. Thorns and briars arose in the universe, and the whole of man's life became a struggle and a strife and a contradiction. The first Adam sinned and brought down himself and all who have been born out of him. That is the position of all of us. The sin of Adam led to all these results. In other words, you see, it means this. That man is a responsible being. God made him, as I say, responsible. He put him in the garden. He said, as long as you obey my laws, I'll bless you. If you disobey, I will turn you out. You'll die. The day thou sinnest, thou shalt die. And it all came to pass. So this establishes that man is a responsible being. It establishes the fact that God does hold him responsible, that God judges him, and that the wages of sin is death that the punishment of disobedience is not only alienation from the life of God, but physical death and spiritual death and being outside the life of God in misery and unhappiness. And as the apostle puts it, for since by men came death, by men came also the resurrection of the dead, As in Adam all die, the whole world as it is, is as it is tonight because of the failure and the rebellion of that first man. He was our representative and we all fell with him and we all die because he sinned. Death has come upon us all and we're all subject and liable to death and we're all weak and we're all the dupes of the devil and sin and hell and the world is in an agony. All this is the result of the fall of men. But you see, death, alas, isn't the end of it all. If death were the end, well then there'd be no need for me to preach, I say. It would be the end and we might as well get out of it as quickly as possible. But death isn't the end. It is appointed unto all men once to die and after death the judgment. We've all got to appear before God and give an account of the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. And you see, this is the tremendous message of the Bible, that man who dies in alienation from God goes on to everlasting misery outside the life of God. I'm not surprised that what some of these spiritualists teach is what they do teach. And that they say that people spend their time in the next life doing what they're doing here. What a life. Smoking cigars, drinking whiskey. Is that heaven? Is that bliss? God forbid it isn't, of course. That's hell. Just a continuation of the life of this world, but even worse. And no hope of ever getting out of it. Everlasting and eternal misery. You see, that is it. There it is. The judgment of God is upon sin. It all fell in Adam and it's remained fallen. What's this Son of God doing here? What's this Jesus who's risen from the dead? Why did the Son of God ever come into this world? Do you know the answer? He came to rescue and to redeem men from the consequences of the action of the first Adam. For since by death came men, by men came also the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. This is why he came. 
God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, sent his only begotten son into it. Why? That whosoever believeth in him should not perish. It's God's love. It's God's purpose of redemption and of grace. Though we are such fools and though we are such blackguards and rebels and vile, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son to this Jesus. What for? Well, to deliver us from the consequences of the fall of Adam. That's what he's doing in this world. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to our Scriptures. Why did he come? Let me tell you this wonderful message again. He came for this reason. That men could only be reconciled to God and live the life he was meant to live. When his sin and the guilt of his sin had been removed and he was reconciled to God. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Impurity can't have fellowship with purity. And man is fallen. We're all fallen. How can a, how can a man be reconciled with God? How can a man be just with God as Job puts it? Do what you like, you can't do it. Try to make yourself better, you can't. You can't clean your heart. You can't control your actions. Your desires are greater than your brain. Try. Well, the greatest men, the saintliest men the world has ever known have all tried it, and they've agreed in saying this. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. We can't do it. Thou must save, and thou alone, and he's done it. That's the message of this great chapter. That's the message of the resurrection. The Son of God came into the world. What for? Well, to be the second man, to be the last Adam, to be the beginner of a new race. And how can he save us? Well, this is his method. He, first of all, must take the guilt of our sins upon him, and he did so. That's why he went to the cross. He could have evaded it. He could have avoided it. He says, I could have commanded twelve legions of angels to carry me to heaven. But if I did so, how should all righteousness be fulfilled? No, no. He came to die. He came to stand as our representative. He took our sins upon himself. And God dealt with our sins in him. He smote him. He struck him. He punished him. He became our sin bearer, our substitute. And God has punished our sins in him. Christ died for our sins. He would never have died otherwise, because he never sinned himself. You see, the whole trouble is this. We all die because we are sinners. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. There'd be nothing in death were it not that we all feel guilty. Thoughts of that unborn, unknown born from which no traveler returns. This is the thing that troubles us. There's Hamlet struggling with this great question. Shall I make my quietus to be or not to be? That's the question. Which is it? Ah, I'll go out. Ah, but thoughts of that unknown born from which no traveler returns. That's the thing that causes the trouble, that if, that possibility. 
So I can't. I can't go out that way. What do I do then? Ah, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But what can be done? Thanks be unto God that giveth us the victory. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, by dying for our sins, was paying the full penalty of the law. The law exacted the last ounce of punishment out of him. It was fully satisfied. And God's glory and justice were likewise satisfied. The law has been answered. And in dealing with the problem of the law, he has dealt with every other problem. He defeated the devil in single combat, in the temptation in the wilderness and afterwards. He never sinned, tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. He conquered, he satisfied the law, he conquered the devil, he mastered evil. Why? He even conquered the last enemy. Don't forget the last enemy. The ultimate consequence of the sin of Adam was death. So death is the last enemy. And if the Son of God can't conquer death, the devil is still triumphant. It isn't enough that we be forgiven. It isn't enough that we be given a new life. We've got to conquer death and the grave and hell. And if he hasn't done that, I am still going to end in the clutches of the evil one. But thanks be unto God, which giveth us the victory. He's risen. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, dear grave, where is thy victory? He's mastered, he's conquered our every enemy, even death included. And what does this lead to? Well, it leads to these tremendous things that the apostle tells us in the body of this chapter. If I believe in this Christ of God, this second man, this last Adam, this victor over death and the grave and hell and the devil, this one who has satisfied the law, this is my position. As he has risen, I shall rise. This very body of mine is going to be changed. At the moment, it's a body of corruption. I'm subject to illness and disease. My body gets tired, it gets weak, it'll fail, and eventually I shall die, and my body will rot in the grave. But I shall rise in an incorruptible body. For this corruption must put on Incorrupt, this corruptible shall, shall have put on, this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. This is what is offered me, a life of glory. So I am able to say something like this. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. That's what I'm able to say. Christ has vanquished all my enemies. He's undone all the consequences of the sin of Adam, ending with the conquest of death. And the rising of the body in a new and in a glorified manner. And therefore he shows me plainly and clearly that this life I still live in this world. 
is a life which is but a preparation for that life of glory and of incorruption which is to come. This is not the only life. This is not the only world. There's another one coming. And there'll be no war in that. There'll be no bombs. There'll be no illness. There'll be no sickness. There'll be no weakness. There'll be no pain, no sorrow, no loss, no sin. It'll be glory, incorruption. So now I've got some reason for trying to live a good and a moral and an ethical life. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. This isn't the only life. This is the antechamber to the eternal. This is the preparatory school for the great university that is coming. The glory that is indescribable. I'm preparing for it. That's why I don't sin. That's why I try to lead a straight life and to discipline myself. Beloved, says John, now are we the children of God. It does not yet appear what we shall be. But this we do know, that when he shall appear, we shall see him as he is, and we shall be like him. And then he draws the deduction. Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. I'm not trying to live the life I'm living because I believe in some little morality or in some little ethical principle. I'm trying to live this life by the grace of God because I believe I'm destined for that glory. I'm going to see this glorified Jesus. I'm going to see God. And the time is short and I haven't a moment to waste. Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. I have tried to pay heed to the exhortation of the apostle. Be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. There is his mighty and tremendous argument. Do you see it? Do you believe it? Do you accept it? Listen to him as he speaks to you. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. Do you believe this message? Do you stand in it? Is this the basis of your outlook? Is this the basis of all your life and living and activity and of conduct? Do you stand in this? Are you holding to this? Realize, if you don't believe this, if you don't hold to this, this is the position. If Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. And if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. You are yet in your sins. That's it. If you don't believe this message of Christ crucified and risen again, you are still in your sins. And if you die, my dear friend, in your sins, 
Well, there's nothing awaiting you but eternal misery and unhappiness. But there's no need for you to go to that. You'll go to that because you're a child of the first Adam. You remain in your sins and they'll go with you and they'll torment you and they'll make you feel miserable. They'll show you what a fool you've been. You'll indulge in endless eternal remorse without intermission or hope of end. But there's no need for you to go to that. Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. He is the second man. He is the last Adam. Believe in him. Believe that he came to bear you a punishment and died for your sins. And I assure you in the name of God you are forgiven at this very moment. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. You may have licked the very gutters of London and lived the foulest life a man is capable of. I don't care. I have authority to say this to you in the name of God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and all your sin is forgiven. It is all blotted out. You'll never have to answer for it. You'll become a new man. You'll be given a new strength and power from this risen Christ. You'll be enabled to live a life of righteousness. And when you die, it isn't the end. What does it mean? Well, as Paul puts it in writing to the Philippians, it means this, to be with Christ, which is far better. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It means that at the end, you'll inherit this incorruption. The mortal will give place to the immortal. The feeble, the weak, will give place to power and glory and wonder everlasting. You'll be able to smile in the very face of death and the grave. You'll have a faith that sees through death. You will know that you are a child of God and destined for this eternal glory and unmixed bliss. My dear friend, do you believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God risen from the dead? Awake to righteousness and sin not. See your position. Repent. Confess it to God. Acknowledge it. Be honest. And simply believe this message I say again. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Life, which is life indeed. He'll raise you up. He'll make a new man of you. He'll raise your very body at the end. And as he is in the glory, you will be in the glory with him. Amen. Amen. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>